don't indulge, don't repress. When stuff gets heavy and I'm in the middle of the night picking up my phone and looking at Twitter and that, you know, and I need to remind myself that there has to be a line drawn where I'm mm. indulging in that. But I also can't walk around just, you know, whistling Dixie like nothing's going on. Right. I believe that your personal life and your professional life are inherently linked. And when you do the work on both sides, you can become the most successful version of yourself. This is a place where wisdom meets leadership, where success meets spirituality. Welcome to Do the Work with Denise Love Hewitt. I was recently listening to Pico Ayer in conversation with Elizabeth Gilbert on Krista Tippett's podcast on being. And Elizabeth Gilbert brought up this idea that hope and fear are both hollow emotions because they are not rooted in reality. And damn, did that hit. It blew my mind. When people say the next generation will solve climate change, even though for hundreds of years we've been siphoning from the earth, the answer is maybe, possibly. But it's not very realistic. It's all of our current responsibility right now. That pie in the sky hope feels almost a little bit spiritual bypassy to me. I've chosen to live in reality for quite some time. I call it living in full truth. That doesn't mean I'm not optimistic, but it feels more honest to be grounded in our truths or wants from the world. It feels achievable and it holds us accountable. I offer this to you today as a food for thought to take with you on your day. Today, I have the deep, deep pleasure of having a conversation with Fanchin Cox. Fanchin and I met at a dinner a few years ago. She is a true multi-hyphenate and award-winning playwright, actor, producer, and educator. She has a one-woman show, One Drop of Love, that she has toured across the country for seven years. She served as the SVP of Development and Impact at Matt Damon and Ben Affleck's Pearl Street Films. And now she just launched her own production company, True Julo Productions. And what I didn't know about Fanchin was that she served in the Peace Corps, which I think is epic. And I was so, I didn't even know that about her because she's had so many different chapters and lives. And what you probably have all heard of and know of is that Fanchin is also the co-author of The Inclusion Writer, which was announced in the 2018 Oscar Awards by Frances McDormand. And she has her own podcast, which you should definitely listen to. She's a co-creator, co-host of Sister Brunch. Thank you, Fanchin, for being here. Oh, my gosh. Thank you, Denise. It's so good to see you. And you are just a perfect example of when people talk about like authentic networking in Hollywood, because sometimes you meet somebody and you're like, oh, gosh, this is only going to be work related. That's not you. You are a like, this is a person I want to hang out with, you know. And so I, I just love that this is a great example just of that alone of this thing that's important to do if you want to work in this industry, but that it's this beautiful, genuine connection that now is like how many years? I know like six, six, I think it's like, I think it's like six, maybe, maybe six or five. It's definitely multi years. I mean, because the pandemic years count as four, not just two. Right. So then, yeah, it's a long time. It's a long time. (laughs) Well, I appreciate that so much because so much, I think of one of the issues in Hollywood is it's a very transactional industry and we have to learn to be more relational. And that's always very important to me is that people are people beyond their titles or jobs. We have many chapters in our careers and our lives. And it's one of my big pain points of Hollywood. So I just deeply, deeply cannot express to you the gratitude to have that be reflected back to me from you. 
No doubt. And and can I say also that one of the things that you put me on to, which was has been so important in my life, is Defy Ventures. <gasps> Yay! Yeah. We're gonna so, be we're gonna be able to go back to prison soon. Love it. I just oh, yeah, I know. talked. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So anyone yes. who doesn't know Defy Ventures is the most amazing organization where we teach people that are incarcerated entrepreneur, entrepreneurship, entrepreneurial skills. And it's for people that are in prison and then post-release. And so if you want to volunteer and go, it is honestly one of the best things that I do has fundamentally changed my life. And I think it will fundamentally change your understanding of the prison system. Oh, good. I'm so happy you're doing that. That makes me thrilled. (laughs) Okay, good. I'll let you know when we're going, when I'm going back. We'll we'll excellent. Oh yeah, we should. I'd love that. Yeah. So one of the things about being a multi-hyphenate is I think sometimes it's hard for people to comprehend all the things that you do, but I think at the core of every multi-hyphenate, there is a through line of purpose. And I was wondering if you had identified for you, what is your through line of purpose across all these different expressions? You could not have asked a better question to have me explain why my production company is called (laughs) Trujillo. (laughs) So Trujillo is spelled T-R-U-J-U-L-O, Trujillo. Trujillo stands for truth, justice, Mm. and love. Mm. So my company uplifts storytellers that speak truth in pursuit of justice in service of love. Trujillo. And that's literally Woo. my driving force. It's it's um it came to me through the work that I do. I do a lot of kind of narrative plus social impact work. And through the years as I did that work through my one woman show, through the inclusion writer, through even just things I kind of did in high school. I I was the only girl on my high school tackle football team. Like through all of those, I kept asking myself, what is that thing that that helps to ensure that there is actually change happening Mm. after doing the work, after having conversations, after, you know, creating a story? And it is truth, justice and love. It is starting with full truths, not the limited truths that we've been told in our history classes or um, in our lives or in the Hollywood narrative of how things operate. Right. But like digging in and the truth lies in those stories we don't know or haven't told. And then it's only when you speak those full truths that you can really be effective in pursuing justice Because if you haven't told those full truths and you're pursuing justice, you're forgetting about a whole lot of people and a whole lot of systems that need that kind of support. And then that's what love looks like. By speaking truth and pursuing justice, you are loving. Wow. That is a beautiful name for your production company and a beautiful purpose to sort of kick off this conversation and talking about all the things that you do and how you contribute to this world in a very meaningful way. And so I want to start sort of at the beginning, which I actually don't think I know is sort of how did your connection sort of to entertainment and performance start and how has that evolved over time? Mm, Yeah. So I declared that I was going to be an actor at nine years old when I was in my bilingual school's production of The Nutcracker. And I got on stage and just felt magic. I felt like there was this opportunity for a connection with an audience in storytelling. Um, and so I, I spent pretty much between nine and 18 um, before going to college 
really kind of declaring, this is the thing I'm going to be, this is the thing I'm going to be. And I was really lucky that I went to an incredible public high school that um, had a, an intensive drama department and, and theater program. Um, and the best thing about what they did was those of us kids who declared we wanted to be actors and were very serious and majored in drama um, often were given kind of secondary roles. And our teachers would go to the football team, to the chess club, to the, you know, to the mechanics association at the school and bring those kids in. And then we'd all create shows together. And so they helped us understand that um, storytelling comes from life experience, not from privilege, right? Like mm. the, the deepest, most important. I happen to also have grown up with two people whose names you probably have heard of, which are Matt Damon and Ben Affleck. And we all got to really close from doing theater together in this environment where they were two people who kind of had immediate resources to take private classes and singing, et cetera. But our teachers wouldn't give them the lead roles. They would give them to these kids who had real life, you know, experiences. And that mattered. You can see some of that in Goodwill Hunting, honestly, is like that we understood that those are where the kind of most important stories come from. So I was really lucky that I had that those seeds planted early on around storytelling with an impact around the importance of community and storytelling and the importance of people without access being the ones to lead the storytelling. That um, took me to, I went to the University of Michigan, majored in theater, but ended up as a, as a Spanish major because I just, it was, theater wasn't doing it for me at that school. And I think part of it was because it was limited in the ways that I had been exposed to. Um, I joined the Peace Corps. I lived in West Africa for a couple of years. So can you just walk me through what spurred that decision? Because that feels like such a major departure from being like, I'm going to be an actor and do theater and then I'm going to join the Peace Corps. Like that is that is a, a noble and brave choice. But being in the Peace Corps is not easy. <laughs> it's not easy at all. They, they had that slogan, it's the toughest job you'll ever love. And, and that is very much, it, it is still to this day, and I'm 52, you know, 30 years away from my Peace Corps experience, and it is still the hardest thing I've ever done. The, speaking of the power of storytelling, I saw a commercial, I think when I was 10, for the Peace Corps, when they started to kind of do a big push uh, to, to recruit volunteers. I, and, I, and I saw it when I was really young and I was like, that's something I'm going to do. And then in college, I became quite the, I think, black Pan-African militant or radical, mm -hmm. probably not militant, and was kind of like, fuck the U.S. and fuck the man. <laughs> and I want to go back to Africa. <laughs> and be with my people. But of course, when I got there and they looked at this light skinned woman with blue eyes, they were like, we are not your people. <laughs> um, so it was really important for me to, to both have that romantic notion of Africa and, and act on it to go and be with community, but also be reminded that I had this kind of martyr syndrome that I was going to go save my mm. people. And they were like, no, no, that's not how this works. Right. And we have a very different story than you have. So I, I, I joined because I had 
been raised in in communities that believed in giving back. And but what I learned, I came back understanding that we can't think of ourselves as the saviors. We got to think of ourselves as like we're all out here in this together. And, you know, how do we not force or impose our own beliefs and perspectives on other people? And again, all of this was informing my storytelling ultimately, right? Like, you know, kind of what it means to be exposed to other people and open to who they are and share who you are is all storytelling skills. But I then then taught in the South Bronx because the Peace Corps has this amazing program called the Peace Corps Fellows. Mine, I did my first master's degree at, at um, Columbia University Teachers College and just as part of that Peace Corps Fellows program. And not, at that point, I started to realize that I was having some imposter syndrome around being an actor and that I was comfortable as a teacher mm. because you get fed in the way in the performance aspect of it because you're performing in your classroom every yes. day trying to figure out how do I make this entertaining so i it, it was my students at the high school in the south bronx who said miss cox we love you you're a wonderful teacher but we know you've got a dream and you always tell us to go pursue our dreams and that we should and you know they were essentially pushing me out into the world and so I moved well, the universe speaks in all different ways. And Honey. in this case, it was your students. <laughs> and you, listen to the youth. You know what I mean? Like that, that was the totally. And this was them really, you know, they, this, they were saying, we, you know, you support us. We're going to support you. Mm-hmm. And we're going to say, go do this. And so I moved out to LA long story. I, I created my one woman show as part of my, my second master's, which was an MFA at Cal state LA, and then got to tour around the country with the show I want to talk, just take a minute, we'll come back to sort of this, the other parts of your career, but I want to take a minute to talk about One Drop of Love because it's really an examination of a few different things. And I'd love you sort of walk through the genesis point of it and what you're trying to accomplish with the show. So the One Drop rule, in case, in case there's anybody who doesn't have context on that, is a rule that was created during enslavement because slave masters were raping their slaves. And there were lots of, in most cases, this is how, you know, there were kids, babies, children who were mixed, you know, for the terminology we use today, they called them mulatto and quadroon, et cetera. And, and they got into a conundrum, which was like, what do we do with these babies? Are they going to be slaved or are they going to be free? And, um, and they created the one drop rule that said that even if they have one drop of African blood, they would be slaves. Mm. And so this comes, the, you know, the title comes from, from the one drop rule, but it really examines the ways that race has been constructed and essentially the lie of race has been constructed and created in this country. And because we all have taken on this lie as truth, that then affects our closest relationships. And so it juxtaposes my family's relationship with race. My father is from Jamaica. He immigrated here in the 50s, late 50s. My mom is a white woman, um, but she's also a registered tribe member with the Blackfeet in Montana and Mm. but she's seen as white to the world and therefore she's got white privilege and because I was raised by a white woman I've got what we call white adjacency privilege 
So it's looking at all of that all together and what to do about it. So it's not just kind of a reflection of it. It's also a let's speak this truth to go back to Trudelo, right? Let's speak this truth so that we can understand how we change this, how we stop looking at race on a hierarchy, right? Like, which is what it was initially created to do is to just put everybody on a hierarchy. So that's, yeah, that's what this show does. And, and Matt Damon and Ben Affleck came on board as executive producers of One Drop. And that was obviously really helpful for the show and led to some important conversations between the three of us mm-hmm. <laughs> because even though we all grew up in this kind of progressive city, they're limited to their perspectives and I and by their identities as white cis men. And um, and that started to show in things like like uh, Project Greenlight in their conversation with Effie Brown. And that our conversations, our challenging conversations and truthful conversations about that led to my working at Pearl Street, working with them at Pearl Street. Wow, that's so interesting. And so in the process of touring One Drop, what did you find? Like you toured it all over the country? I toured it all over the country. I, when I wrote it, I heard call and response in my head. So call and response, again, forgive me if y'all who are listening know what it is, but if you don't, Call and response is what you would get to experience in a black church or a black movie theater, (laughs) which is that, you know, when someone's speaking to you, you speak back. And, you know, the the folks in the audience or, you know, who are participating, it's, it's participatory. It's interactive. And as I was writing the show, I heard that interaction. I imagined that people would be interacting with me in the show, but it depended (laughs) on where I took the show. (laughs) Right. Because white audiences don't do call and response. So when I did the show in Atlanta, there was this very different reaction and response. And it was also, so in Atlanta's heavily black, like the city of Atlanta, right? And so there was, there was that kind of response. When I did the show for the Naval Academy prep school, there were black people there, but it was very black and brown and, you know, folks who are familiar with call and response. But the leadership was white and the and it was very clear that there was there. Well, there is with the Navy. There's kind of this hierarchy that I've talked about trying to dismantle um, and it was it it devolved into fights on campus after I left. Oh, wow. And then there was everything in between <laughs> everywhere right. across the country. There was everything in between that. I think that's really that's powerful. I, I think it's interesting just to begin with that the Navy would bring you in in the first place, knowing the subject matter of what you're doing. And then because, you know, as much as theater is supposed to like push boundaries and be progressive, all these things. I think that there's traditional spaces where that can live. And then there's spaces where like, it doesn't necessarily like, you know, I wouldn't think that people that uphold sort of a old sort of order would welcome your show into, to see it. So was that surprising to you? Was that, I mean, it's also, I always say 
the work in terms of like what I public speak about, you know, in equity in Hollywood and venture capital, I want to be speaking not in an echo chamber. I want to be speaking in the rooms where we can create the most amount of change, which is the people that are upholding (laughs) the system. (laughs) And so, but it's always a challenge, right? To make the case, to be in those rooms, to get people to think differently. Um, And that, but it's clearly where you make the most impact. So I'm sure for you, it was sort of like both, which is like, okay, great. But you knew, I'm sure you knew there'd be some fallout post show. Yeah, that one was an interesting one because the the person who brought me is someone who grew up in Cambridge. So mm-hmm. where where Matt and Ben and I grew up in this very kind of like what we thought was this kind of multicultural heaven. And she warned me and 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 we did a lot of preparation, including, you know, I, I have uh, educational materials for the show. You know, we talked through this with the whole admin. And as a matter of fact, when I got to the end of the show, they stood up and gave me this huge kind of standing ovation. Then we got to the Q&A. And this is where it's one thing for people to kind of be distant from mm. the things you're saying but the first question in the Q&A was from a, I think, cadet is, is their right rank to call them. And she said, what grade would you give the Navy in terms of diversity? Whoa. <laughs> You're like, truth, truth, justice and love. I got to tell you. <laughs> and and but but here's the thing is all I had to do was say, look around the room. Right. hundred percent. Who's in a position of power and what do they look like? What are their demographics and who isn't? Who do you see cleaning your lawns and who do you see teaching you? Right. Like, so you tell me, what do you think? That question started, you know, things people started to rumble on that one. Then the Kaepernick question came because this was right at the time Trump hadn't won yet. We many of us liberals thought he could never win. But this was when it was starting to look like there was some potential. And this a black man cadet raised his hand and said, what do you feel? How do you feel about Kaepernick? And I said, well, you all your purpose is to uphold our right to protest. Literally, that's what the Navy is this one of the things you do is to protect right. our rights and we have a right to protest. So I think what he's doing is important and meaningful yep. and having an impact. But that is when really it uh, devolved. I got out of there safely and truly it it felt unsafe at some point, but I got out of there safely and then and then it became ugly. So and that is- truth piece is both important, but also we have to think about making ourselves safe within that too. Well, that's why a lot of people don't speak truth, right? For the fear that if they do, they're ostracized, mm-hmm. you know, bullied, beat up, whatever. I mean, that's really the, the cost and risk of truth is sometimes your safety. Yeah. Uh, and when you're a crusader for truth, you have a commitment to truth. It is a very brave path in a world that is, seems to just want to keep ignoring truth. Yeah. Brave and I'm a light skinned black woman, so I'm safe. And it's hard because sometimes that means I'm perpetuating the very thing that I'm here telling them 
not to do, right? Is by them listening to me or being open to me. Because look, what I know about OneDrop, as proud as I am of it, and I believe that I had a positive impact for the most part, I also know fully that if I looked differently, if I had darker skin in this exact same otherwise same story, same everything, it would not have been received in the same way. And so I think for those of us who do this work, one of my points is we can be brave and we need to do it because we're safe, because we're safer than other marginalized folks, right? Um, But we also need to call out the fact that we are able to be safe in it. Yes. So yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I I appreciate that distinction. Thank you for sharing that. So then you went to Pearl Street Films Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and in the course of being there, what was sort of your perspective of of what you wanted to contribute while you were there? Yep. I, I remember in the first week or so I sent this kind of like mission statement, like this is what's going to happen. And the first was internal work. So us consistently educating ourselves and evolving around social justice, right? And the ways that we as a company and as individuals were perpetuating the things that we said we didn't want to have happen in Hollywood. Then number two, at the time, I also wanted us to do trainings. I, you know, it's kind of like, I know that there, I know that part of the reason people say they can't do more hiring is because people, they, they say people aren't qualified. So what can we do to help people get qualified? And then the third thing I wanted to do was development. So, um, you know, to actually bring projects to Pearl Street and get them done. The internal continues as it should and continued at Pearl Street. And, um, and, and I, I will say for the most part was often well-received, but it didn't mean it was internalized right. all the way. Right. The training, the educational piece I realized was not our, was not something we needed to do because it was reinventing the wheel. There are more than enough training programs for, for writers, directors. There aren't enough for crew. But they're certainly more than enough. And what was actually happening is that people were going through these training programs and then due to racism, sexism, homophobia, they weren't getting hired out of them. Yep. So the last thing we needed to do was to tell these folks, you need to be you just haven't been trained. When in reality, no, it's that you're not getting hired. You you are qualified. You're not getting hired. That's what led me to to co-create the inclusion writer to force the issue around hiring, not around training. And then the third development is what I continue to do. And and that's been wonderful because the projects that I had going at Pearl Street are now just transferred over to True Duo and Matt and Ben are still involved in the places where they're appropriate to be involved in. But that that was what I wanted to do. So I want to talk about... Hollywood and sort of the illusion of progress. This is Mm. the, Mm. the big thing that keeps me up at night is that Mm. yes, there have been strides. Yes. We have probably like more films with people of color at the center Mm. behind the camera, 
maybe not so much, mm-hmm. but I think, okay, in front of camera, sure. Yes, we have like things like the inclusion writer, but I still think we're a very far ways away from equity in this business. And so when you look at the landscape and all the stuff that you've been able to do to contribute to that shift, what are the things that you think are still sort of not cementing or integrating? Because this is really what uh, what keeps me up at night is the idea that like everyone at this juncture in the world believes that they're inclusive, right? That's what they tell mm-hmm. themselves. Mm-hmm. Intellectually, they think they're inclusive. Mm-hmm. Somatically, in your body, are you? No. Mm-hmm. The answer is most mm-hmm. of you are not. Amen. So there's this, there's this difference between being in our brain and being in our body and how do we get to integration in the work? Because I think Hollywood's very much in this place where intellectually, I think they think they are there, but we are not integrated in the body in terms of holistically being an equitable, equitable industry. Totally. <laughs> so... <laughs> no- <laughs> Say so, it. Say that. Call and response. Yes, sister, say it. <laughs> so knowing that, because this is mm-hmm. like, you know, so much of scripted was about this. How do you sure was, yeah. Get from beginning to end, get people to really start to think this through in a more meaningful way. What knowing that the inclusion writer has been put out there, it exists. Do we believe that it's been fully backed up? Number one. Number two, what are the steps that you want to see happen? in this business to actually be more of the change we need? Yes. Okay. So um, I'm going to take the opportunity to tell you all what the inclusion writer is, because I think a lot of times what happens is, and and we both appreciate Francis McDormand, obviously, for saying the words inclusion writer in 2018, but also it it meant that now there's this terminology that people don't really fully understand, both for better and worse, right? Because they kind of pick it up. But so I want to walk you through the four steps. And this responds to your question around at least what we believe, Kalpen and I and Stacy and I believe is part of what we need to do. So the inclusion writer is, is a legal clause, right? So, you know, when you get a, a contract for a, a, a pro, you know, a film project, let's take a film project, you're, you know, you, and, and with Ben and Matt, they are negotiating with a studio. So it's a shitload of money on the line. It's a, you know, like, and there are all these legal documents, but actors at their level, A-listers get to make all kinds of kind of requests and demands on their contract that don't have to do with money necessarily, but have to do like, for example, with their comfort level on set. So they'll ask for a certain level of trailer, right? Like a luxury trailer for when they're not on set. And that, and the way they do that is by adding something called a rider. So it's R-I-D-E-R, not writer, right? A rider is a clause to a contract. So what we said is we want you to create this rider to your contract, which is not about the food you're going to get on set. It is about hiring inclusively. And it has these four steps that both Ben and Matt or whatever actor or production company, et cetera, that takes it in and the studio are agreeing to do as part of the process of their hiring. The first step is to diversify and deepen the hiring pool. And this comes from the Rooney rule you know, that they used in the NFL that was around when you go to hire an assistant coach, you need to hire at least, I think at the time, or you need to interview at least X number of diverse candidates. And I think it might've been just two for the Rooney rule. 
the Rooney rule did not work. Brian Flores of the Miami Dolphins has currently a court case about exactly this because it is exactly what you're saying, Denise. It is all the folks that if you stop there, all those folks that put up their black squares and now are, you know, have commodified Juneteenth. All those folks think that they've now done the diversity because they said, well, we've now we've at least considered this number of people. Right. But we are saying that that's an important step because that's the first step in you shifting your mindset from going with the nepotism, going with the same old, same old. The first step is to to commit yourselves to broadening who you're going to hire in the first place. Step one. Step two is then to actually make targets and benchmarks. So it's not enough just to broadly kind of ambiguously say, we're going to look at more people. Step two is to say, we are going to commit to hiring this number of LGBTQ folks, this number, like our cast, our lead cast roles are going to represent this number of people of color, et cetera to actually set the targets on this. So you can use the census data of where you're filming or or where the story's supposed to take place to determine that, but you actually have to state, and this is a process that you do with Matt and Ben or for Pearl Street, this is what I would do with the studio, with the production company. How, How many people are we going to hire or we're gonna target to hire in these roles? That's step two. Step three, and this is where the pushback always comes in, and you'll understand why, is to actually collect the data. So it's not enough just to ambiguously say, we're going to do this. It's not enough even to say our targets are this. You actually have to collect the data. And our point is, don't wait for Stacey Smith and USC to shame you because they've collected your data. You collect it. And then you look at it, you see it. Because when you are in a position of privilege, it's really hard for you to actually see it. Not excusing it, but it is, right? And so this way, you're looking at the hard numbers in front of you that you've collected during this process, and now you you know what you need to do. The final step is you compare your data to your targets and benchmarks. In the negotiation from the beginning, you have agreed to make a meaningful financial contribution to the places where you fell short in your targets and benchmarks. And this is the place that is the hardest to get these people, for lack of a better term, and I'll be nice, euphemistically. This is always the sticking point. Well, who's going to pay and how much are we going to have to pay? And why don't we just give you money up front? Now, you're not going to give money up front because you have to do the reflection work of looking at how you did, because that's going to help you understand where you went wrong. You said this is your goal. You didn't meet that goal. You have to understand why you didn't meet that goal. And if you don't meet that goal, You're giving back into these organizations that serve to uplift these people, nurture these people, uplift these people. That's the inclusion writer. Which is awesome. Thank you, by the way, for creating that and doing that. (laughs) The issue is, right, is that there's a really big resistance to data in Hollywood, number one. Mm -hmm. Number one, there's a huge resistance to data. 
it's a lot of, you know, in terms of how we make things, we don't even want the data around IP or content because we want to work, work on celebrity and opinion and ego. So there's that, that's number one issue. Number two issue is that to be a person who is living the values of being anti-racist and inclusive in the world, it is maintenance work. It is everyday work. And it's not like this one moment in which you great. I read a book or I implemented the inclusion writer. I'm good. That reflection work is such a big piece of it and you can't bypass it. Right. But then you're asking people to do work that not everyone's ready to do, which Mm -hmm. is the big sort of crux point we're at, which is like, it's not enough anymore just to throw money at an issue. It's not enough anymore to hire people. The reality is if you aren't learning how to be a less harmful person walking this world. It doesn't matter how much you hire people. If they don't feel safe, they're not going to stay. If they don't feel heard, they're not going to stay. If you throw money at a problem, that's great. But if you're still harmful walking through space, you are still a part of the problem. And granted, like growing up in white supremacy, like we're all going to make mistakes. We're all going to do have a harmful moment. And so like, that's not to say that we're going to be perfect all the time, but it's holding ourselves accountable and doing that reflection work. That is such a big piece of this that it's still just like not being done. Well, I oh, beg great. to we differ. Have we have good news. We have good news. <laughs> we do have good news. So, so again, right. The challenge is this works a fucking marathon, right? But you don't get to the end of the marathon unless our mentality is, nah, motherfuckers, this is a sprint. Yep. Right? Like, yep. Th- because that's the only way we get to the marathon work. So I, I, I want to share a couple things. One is that that in what what Francis McDormand referred to was the writer template that Stacy Smith from USC, Kalpana Kodagal, who's a civil rights attorney, badass. I have to just add that to her name, badass civil rights attorney and labor law expert, and me coming together and creating that. And then extreme everything you just said, all the pushback, but actually they were smart and manipulative in their pushback because they didn't say we don't want to do it. They said we're already doing it. Of course, of course, this is important to us. Guess what? We're already doing it. And at that time, we accepted that and didn't implement the rider because they said they were doing it which is why then we started to get really strong on the data collection and reporting. During the protests against police violence and murder a couple years ago, everybody started calling again. Right. So, that, so you know, Matt, Ben and I and, and Michael B. Jordan were all kind of using this, but it was very internal. It was very project by project. When people started calling us again, we also got in touch with Color of Change. And if y'all don't know Color of Change, Color of Change gets stuff done and their focus is on legislation. And so Kalpana and I, at this point, Stacey, um, you know, kind of uh, went to do other things, which was fine, right? But Kalpana and I then really put our, joined our efforts with Color of Change. And then we also worked with Dr. Tasman Plater at Endeavor Content. Here we had Tasman, who was implementing the inclusion writer, not on an individual project by project basis, but that he was using it at all of Endeavor content. So awesome. all their projects, he that is implemented. He's the head of HR. So it was being used at a company level. So now we, ha- we are looking at systemic change because awesome. the individual is... I didn't know this, by the way, which I'm shocked I didn't know this. 
So I'm like, where was this press release that I missed? Because it's rare that I miss something like this. And it gets better. We still have our individual one, which then we also then started adding intersectional language there. So mm -hmm. we hadn't thought about colorism before. We hadn't had the voices of the disability community contributing to the original rider, and now we do, right? So we added language around intersectionality. We added language around disability, colorism, sizeism, ageism, and we created a company version. And Tasman took this company version of the inclusion rider and also created an implementation guide. So all the lessons that we learned around how do you ask people to self-identify in a way that makes them safe? Because prior, when you were identifying your race or, or your you know, identity as LGBTQ, you were afraid to because it was used against you. Now, for the inclusion writer, we're saying we need you to do that so that we can collect this data. But there are ways that you have to do that carefully and legally mm -hmm. and in a way that is protecting the the, um, you know, the the identity of the people you're asking. So his implementation guide breaks all of that down, how to do that in a way that's legal and effective. Then we also brought on other places. So AMC Networks is also awesome. now a signatory. They are using it in theirs. The Grammys took That's it amazing. on this year for hiring. The fashion industry, they used it for New York Fashion Week. Huge. So it is now. So and, and then I want to share one more one yeah, more yeah. thing. Which was my point around the marathon. One of the problems with data in Hollywood is that there is no baseline currently, right? The only baseline we had was Stacy's work and UCLA's work, and that's not to take away from either of them. They're so important. But these companies, because they, you know, lied or didn't look at it or whatever it was, didn't have baselines. We are both being radical. We're on that sprint with these companies saying, you have to do this, but we're also being openly in marathon status by saying what we need you to do right now is set a baseline for yourselves. That's what we had to do at Pearl Street because they weren't even used to looking at data, let right. alone collecting it. So we yes. can be gentle in that sense. We're setting a baseline so that the next year or the next project, when you create a target and benchmark, you have a place to start. Mm -hmm. And that's what Endeavor's doing. That's what AMC Networks is doing. Color of Change is doing data collection around how they're doing. So we can all be transparent about that. And Ben's film, he recently, they're in post on a film that he did with Robert Rodriguez as the director called Hypnotic. And this was the first film at Pearl Street that we fully implemented this process on. So when that comes out, we'll be able to talk about the data there. It's going to be a baseline, yeah. I'm going to tell you right now, but it's a place where we all start. I just want to take a minute to just commend you because creating tangible systemic change is incredibly hard to do to look at like 
simple solutions to equate to a much larger outcome. And so having just like done this exercise, I think all of us sort of in the same sort of soul space looking to create that change to have done that, implemented it and to be where it is now. I just want to give you a big, big congrats because it is not easy to push this stuff. It's not easy to push these boulders up the hill and (laughs) to learn from it, to modify it. Yeah. But I just really want to take a minute because it's a major success and it's like thinkers like you in this business that are going to change it because it's just so hard to be the person pushing truth in Hollywood. It's a big labor and it's really, really challenging. And I just immense amount of gratitude to you. I want to take a quick minute to, to share that with Kalpana Kodagal. And the, the beautiful thing about her, one is that she is an outsider in the best of ways. So entertainment attorneys are limited in their understanding of labor law. So she was able to be like, no, no, you number one, that's illegal what you just did. Right. Or what you said or the way the fact that you're not collecting the data is illegal. Right. Yeah. You legally have to. You have to look at this. Right. And one of the points of pushback from kind of the some of the more conservative places we go is these are quotas and those are illegal. The, The targets and benchmarks, they're not quotas because we are talking about targeting the hiring of qualified individuals who are historically underrepresented. So that this is not a quota, right? But we needed Kalpana to tell all of these entertainment attorneys, this is not a quota. And here's the language you need to use to clarify that this is not a quota. Kalpana last week sat before the Senate confirmation hearing because President Biden has tapped her to be a commissioner on the EEOC. And part of that is because he, they called the inclusion writer a seminal legal template. Awesome. So she is she is no joke. And she does she is all about this work. And that's what Hollywood needed was someone from the outside to come in and be like, mm-mm. This, Change this always is how, comes from the outside. Always, sister. <laughs> always. There's only so much we can we too deep in this, right? Yeah, it's true. Yeah, it's very true. So can you tell me what are sort of your dreams or aspirations for True Julo since you're on this new, exciting journey? Yes, yes. I want True Julo to have a a first look deal mm-hmm. with one of these so-called socially conscious studios, production companies, et cetera. And that will provide the overhead to create the kind of content that I see is lacking in the industry, despite the fact that dear friends of mine and organizations that I adore, like Film Independent, like A24, like some of Sundance are already doing. But what's lacking, I find, is a representation of um, solidarity of marginalized groups in our storytelling. I think where we are right now is a lot of silos and that's needed and important. So you have like folks that are doing black storytelling and we need that. You have folks that are doing AAPI content and we need that. True Delo tells stories of, for example, Grace Lee and James Boggs, a Chinese and black couple that were active civil, you know, in the civil rights movement, um, married to each other and committed to this work. So True Delo is about that intersectional, intra-cultural, racial, and intercultural racial ways that we take 
historical context, the truths that we didn't speak of, the non-dominant narratives, and connect them to our contemporary identities. Mm. So, and my goodness, I could also go on for another hour about the incredible projects that I'm developing at uh, True Delo, but we can, you know, <laughs> save excited. that for another. Yeah, but no, I'm definitely got excited. some great stuff. Yeah, I got some great stuff. So we're going to jump into our rapid fire. You just do what intuition tells you. Don't think about it too much. All right. All right. What would you tell your 20-year-old self? Ooh, keep going, sister. Keep going. What is the last book you read? I'm reading a book about Chief Joseph, who was the Nez Perce leader um, from the little town that my mom grew up in. My mom passed away in January, and this was an incredible Native leader, but also problematic. And so I'm learning about that historical context and how it informs our contemporary identities through this book about Chief Joseph. (laughs) Mm. What are you struggling with right now? Funding. Okay. You heard that first. I know. You heard that first. (laughs) I know you've been there, sister. (laughs) Yes, I have. We can sidebar about that one. Yeah. What is bringing you joy right now? You and, and, and honestly, white folks doing the work. It was not enough of us, but yes, yes, totally. And, and it, you know, I, I've, I, I probably would get shot on by my, my, by my folks of color. It would be like, you, you, the white folks, I don't give a fuck how good they doing, but yeah, they've been asleep I, too long. <laughs> <laughs> it's joyful to be able to speak on this level. I agree. But this is the point of the work, right? This is like, if I can express 100%. this to any person who's afraid or they feel like, you know, concerned about saying the wrong thing or whatever it is that's going through their mind, the depth of connection you experience when you do the work is just, you're, you're fucking living. Like you're living at the highest level. You're connecting with people on a very deep level. And that is really the point is that you're living a fully rich human experience. Like life is not meant to be lived just with people that think and look like you. And so that's really the point. If anyone's on the fence, it's like, you're going to make mistakes. Just make the mistake. Step in the shit shit with all of us. All of our shit stinks, right? Like learn from it, get better, keep going. Yeah. 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 What is the best piece of advice you've ever received? Ooh, ooh, oh man. I was like, let the first thing come to your head and oh my gosh, it's been so many. This is recent. Uh, my, you know, when my mom died, I had a speaking gig or kind of scheduled for, for not too long afterwards. And I was like, I don't, I don't know if I can do this, but I want to do it and I want to try. So I had a great therapy session in which my therapist I said, what happens if I just am speaking and just freeze and just, you know, break down? And and my therapist said, that's okay because you're a human and you need to, they need to be able to see that. And you give them permission to be human too if you do, if that happens. And I was like, oh, great. And But I thought that was where the advice stopped. But I said, okay, great. Oh my goodness, that's great. You know what? I might even just walk off stage and like do five minutes of my talk and just leave. And it was like, no, 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 hold on. Let's back up a little bit. And he said, well, you got to remember where you are right now in your grieving process. And this is true as a country. We all grieving, right? And Buffalo and all the things to still come, which was don't indulge, don't repress. Mm. Don't indulge, don't repress. When stuff gets heavy and I'm in the middle of the night picking up my phone and looking at Twitter and, you know, and I need to remind myself that there has to be a line drawn where I am Mm. indulging in that. 
but I also can't walk around just, you know, whistling Dixie like nothing's going on. Right. Like I have to be, you know, aware and and acknowledge shit that's happening. So don't indulge, don't repress is the best current it's advice that I've Great got. advice. It's great advice. I think it's we're living in a really hard time where it's hard to really understand how to balance the heartache we all feel with the, you know, the day to day that we have to sort of do. I think it's a very, it's very tough to sort of keep mentally well currently. Um, totally. And the more marginalized you are, the harder that is and the less you should have to carry that burden. A hundred percent. It just gets more and more compounded. Yeah. Um, okay. So we're going to talk, walk us through our takeaways. I frankly was just very consumed by all the wisdom. I only have a few because I was just listening really deeply, but I just want to go back to the start of this conversation, which was true Jello. When we speak from truth, we can create real justice to create real love. I think that is just awesome and beautiful. And I'm so happy you're building something with that sentiment. Storytelling comes from life experience. And I think this is such a big one because so much of the pain we experience is actually what becomes our POV and how we can contribute real change to the world. As truth tellers, we also have to walk through space acknowledging our privilege and safety in the bravery. I think that's a really good note for us to remember who has the privilege to be a truth teller, how safe are they? I think we have to really take that home with us. Thinking about practice, practical solutions to evolve us to systemic shift. I think that all of us have more power than we think we have in our day-to-day lives. And if we understand an industry well, if we find the right sort of group of thinkers together, we can really start to create real shift. And I think that's what we all need to remember is none of us have any more agency than anybody else to make things happen. And lastly, we're going to leave it with don't indulge, don't repress. We're living in a challenging world and I wish everyone just to find their inner peace however they can, because it's really, really hard right now. And Fanshin, like what a combo, what a gift. I'm so happy to see you and hear you and also see you embarking on a chapter that is centering your genius and all you. And I think it's time. Thank you, sister. And you too. And, and, and I, I know you've got to be kind of, grieving and mourning over scripted and this hard for all I am, (laughs) but we know there's more and everything that you did with scripted scripted will, will go towards what you're doing next. You, you haven't lost anything and scripted didn't lose anything. It just may need to morph and be something else. I appreciate that. I think, you know, the big lesson I learned was that the universe has a plan that maybe I'm not aware of and I'm on that journey and the gift, the gift of that, chapter of my life, it changed me radically to my core. So, you know, that's the gift. And I don't look at things like sort of like failure or success. I look at everything as like a deep learning and a deep evolution. And I I learned and gained more that it's just ultimately the most priceless, priceless journey I've ever been on. So I appreciate you acknowledging that because it has been as I say, it'll be a lifetime heartbreak. It is um, what I recently public speaking about, but you know that's part of life. Heartbreak is a part of life, and I know you're grieving. Don't as indulge. Well. Don't don't repress. That's exactly it, right. Is like it's both of those. It's to acknowledge that hurt and the pain, but also to figure out the places where you have to keep on moving because your work is so important. And it's not fair to say, but we'll say it. We need you so. Keep, well, we keep. need you too. And I know you've been grieving as well amidst a lot of change. So I hope you're taking care of yourself. And Fanchin, will you let everyone know where they can find you? 
Yes, you can find me on on the gram. Someone told me don't call it the gram call anymore. It the, gram. The, the young yes. people don't call it that anymore. <laughs> uh, on Instagram at Trujillo Media, T R U J U L O Media. I'm also at Fanchon Cox on Instagram, on Twitter at Fanchon. And Trujillo is at Trujillo Media, same as Instagram. And then also check out the website, trujillo.com. You can sign up for our newsletter. I do a monthly newsletter where I talk about the projects that we're developing and also add some tidbits, share things that my mentees are up to. Um, So it's kind of a fun, fun way to keep track of Trujillo and get some it's some ideas around storytelling. Itself. And your podcast. Let them know where to find your oh, podcast. Oh my goodness. Sister Brunch podcast is on all the places where you listen to podcasts. It is highlighting black women and non-binary folks working in entertainment and media. And it's incredible. We've got a good solid three seasons in. Everyone from like emerging writers to long-term industry writers, executives, uh, camera folks, you know, DPs. It's really an amazing group of women. And, and we just, we just love doing the podcast and love bringing these voices to, to more people. So sisterbrunch.com is the website too. Yay. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you all so much for listening. It really does mean the world. I call this the little pod that could. To continue to listen or become a subscriber, you can find Do The Work on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, anywhere that you can find podcasts, you can find Do The Work. It makes a huge difference if you could review, share, and rate this podcast. Thank you to Wine Designs Media, Lenny Skolnick for that musical intro, Lindsay Johnson on the graphics, Olivia Christian on social. I am so grateful. I hope you find or continue living in your purpose.